Hello, I'm PJ Matthews from the School of English, Drama and Film at University College Dublin. Welcome to this UCD ScholarCast. The following lecture in the series The Art of Popular Culture from the Meeting of the Waters to Riverdance will be given by PJ Matthews from the School of English, Drama and Film at University College Dublin. Doing Something Irish from Thomas More to Riverdance The aim of this series is not to offer a comprehensive consideration of Irish popular culture from the early 19th century to the present, but rather to offer insights into key moments in the story of Irish popular culture since the publication of Thomas More's Irish Melodies in the early 19th century. The term popular culture is deployed in various ways in the critical literature on the subject and needs some clarification here. Firstly, it can denote a sense of a general authentic folk culture produced by the people. This can encompass everything that constitutes collective cultural expression from songs, games and religious rituals to patterns of social and political organisation, culture as it is popularly practised. Such expressions of vernacular culture are usually considered to be germane to the people and in many cases inimical to the influence of the modern institutions of church and state. Antiquarian interest in Irish popular culture of this nature is well represented by the writings of William Wilde, who published his influential Irish popular superstitions in 1852. In his anti-utilitarian critique of the disappearance of popular cultural practices in 19th century Ireland, he was subtly aware of the relationship that can exist between the expression of popular culture and attempts by the authorities to regulate it. Well honoured be the name of Theobald Matthew, he wrote, but after all, a power of fun went away with the whisky. Behind this apparently flippant comment, therefore, one can detect a concern that something that Wilde considered to be a vital and salient feature of Irish popular life was being threatened by the rigorous demands of cultural reformation insisted upon by the Catholic-led devotional revolution that swept across Ireland from the mid-19th century onwards. Its main impact was to replace local and independent forms of worship with centralised and standardised practices. However, as Garrod O'Krulioch has persuasively argued in his essay on the Merry Wake, traditional folk practices could often operate as a central social mechanism for the articulation of resistance by the peasantry to new forms of civil and clerical control, well into the 19th century. In this sense, traditional popular culture often proved to be very successful in repelling the advances of the newer Catholic orthodoxies. In another usage of the term, Popular culture can refer to the mass-produced products of the culture industries, to use the phrase coined by Adorno and Horkheimer. In this definition, popular culture is primarily a commercially produced one, culture as it is popularly consumed. As Claire Wills points out in her lecture Neutrality and Popular Culture in this series, mass popular culture in Ireland follows a distinct trajectory in comparison with experience in Britain and the US in the 19th and early 20th centuries. However, in the figure of Thomas More, Ireland produced a writer whose work achieved the pinnacle of popular success in the early part of the 19th century and endured in the popular consciousness well into the 20th century. Moore's Irish melodies were not only widely circulated in print form, 
but were widely performed in drawing room and concert hall, making a lasting impression on the popular culture of his own moment in Ireland, Britain and beyond. Indeed, it may not be too fanciful to suggest that in many interesting ways, Thomas Moore's life anticipated that of a latter-day celebrity pop star. Born into the ranks of the Catholic middle classes in 1779, Moore aspired to inhabit the sphere of the Anglo-Irish ascendancy, but also harboured a deep resentment of the injustices which that class perpetrated on his fellow Irishmen and women. It is this ambivalence which informs many of his better-known works and which infuses the Irish melodies. He associated himself with what were considered to be dangerous and seditious revolutionaries like Robert Emmett, but he also cultivated the favour and patronage of wealthy members of the British establishment. He was at once a key figure in Irish cultural nationalism in the 19th century and a stalwart of the London drawing room. In his most popular work, he managed to capture something of the haunted mystique of old Ireland while appealing to the genteel conventions of British taste. He was a master at trading on his liminality, offering a sentimental portrait of Gaelic defeat to his British admirers, while appearing to his Irish supporters as an active member of the nationalist revolutionary underground. The complicated posturing that he was engaged in is not entirely unlike that of latter-day celebrities who can trade on their anti-establishment credentials and cosy up to the world's most powerful politicians when it suits them. Indeed, his triumphant homecoming to Ireland in 1835 was met with the kind of popular attention that any latter-day celebrity would envy. One of Moore's most popular melodies, The Meeting of the Waters, gives its name to this lecture series and embodies the easy sentiment and lyric pastoral which made Moore such a popular phenomenon in the 19th century. What is notable about this song is the fact that the speaker is decidedly underwhelmed by the scene of natural beauty that he recalls where the rivers Avon and Avoca meet close to Rathdrum in County Wicklow. Yet it was not that nature had shed o'er the scene her purest of crystal and brightest of green. It was not her soft magic of streamlet or hill. Oh no, it was something more exquisite still. So, it is not the bounty of nature that makes this valley in Wicklow the sweetest valley in the world. In fact, it is the human presence of Moore's close friends that aggrandizes the natural landscape. Twas that friends the beloved of my bosom were near, who made every dear scene of enchantment more dear, and who felt how the best charms of nature improve when we see them reflected from looks that we love. This contrasts very interestingly with Wordsworth's recall of the lone encounters with nature in the prelude, which was written around the same time. The Vale of Avoca is certainly an idealised pastoral retreat, a spiritual home, but a convivial one, where the storms that we feel in this cold world should cease, and our hearts like thy waters be mingled in peace. The key to Moore's popularity lay in the fact that his unspecified storms could easily be interpreted in the London drawing rooms where Moore performed as the pangs of a homesick Irish exile. In Dublin, however, they might be taken as a coded reference to the defeat of the United Irishmen or the death of Moore's friend Robert Emmett, who had hidden in the hills of Wicklow before his capture a few short years before this poem was written. As one critic put it, his evocations of Irish landscape, of the remembered valley or home of the exile, are evocations of place that the spirit never leaves, of an Ireland that persists through all changes and catastrophes as the beloved place. 
If a song like The Meeting of the Waters represses the political complexities of its historical moment, a more obviously political verse like O Breathe Not His Name gives them fuller expression. Here, Moore can be credited with introducing the idea of the spectral or ghostly presence of the lost leader into modern Irish literature in English. The title, of course, referring to Emmett's famous speech from the dock where he famously enunciates, When my nation has taken its place among the nations of the earth, then and not till then let my epitaph be written. The withholding of the epitaph brilliantly suspends closure on Emmett's death and takes him into the realm of the undead, where he can exercise an influence on Irish politics well beyond the moment of his execution. The opening of Moore's song alludes to this. O oh, breathe not his name, let him sleep in the shade, where cold and unhonoured his relics are laid. Sad, silent and dark be the tears that we shed, as the night dew that falls on the grass o'er his head. Now, on the face of it, the song seems to draw a line under the events of 1803. Let Emmett rest in peace, it seems to suggest. However, the word shade conjures up an image of the ghost or spirit of Emmett, whose memory must be kept alive, if unarticulated. How can this be achieved? Well, by a ritual of weeping. Sad, silent and dark be the tears that we shed. If tears are to be shed, therefore, they must be silent and shed in the cover of darkness. Once again, Moore seems to be buying into a stereotypical and disabling Irish mawkishness. However, the closing couplet bears a potent and ominous political message. And the tear that we shed, though in secret it rolls, shall long keep his memory green in our souls. The imperative mood of the song gestures towards the existence of an underground or parallel universe of clandestine revolutionary solidarity, which will draw strength from Emmett's memory. A classic example of the ambiguity of intention that characterises the melodies and makes them available to a number of different, often competing readings. Moore taps into the spirit of antiquarian interest in Ireland's past and popularised it for a non-academic audience. Ironically, he created a popular culture out of a decidedly aristocratic notion of the Gaelic past, in verses like The Harp That Once Through Tara's Halls and Dear Harp of My Country. He presents an idealised and remote Gaelic past, together with understated suggestions that the glories of the lost past might someday be resuscitated. Even personal songs like Oft in the Stilly Night seem to have a wider cultural resonance, a sense of the decline and ending of a way of life embodied in domestic harmony and largesse, which has now passed. Thomas Moore concluded the preface to the 1856 edition of his Irish Melodies as follows. I now take my leave of the Irish Melodies, the only work of my pen, as I very sincerely believe, whose fame, thanks to the sweet music in which it is embalmed, may boast a chance of prolonging its existence to a day much beyond our own. Before centuries end, however, Moore's status as Ireland's national poet was being assaulted by the young W.B. Yeats, who had designs on that title himself. In a major statement on traditions and influences in 19th century poetry, Yeats was very clear about the bardic company he wished to keep. Know that I would account it be true brother of a company that sang to sweeten Ireland's wrong, ballad and story, ran and song. However, in the second stanza of To Ireland in the Coming Times, he very pointedly omitted any reference to Thomas More. Nor may I less be counted one 
with Davis Mangan Ferguson. In his autobiographies, Yeats, who had a very clear vested interest in discrediting his poetic rival, was more explicit in his dismissal of Moore's convivial Ireland with the traditional tear and smile, as he put it. Elsewhere, he critiqued Moore's highly commercial verses as artificial and mechanical, terms not unlike those later used by Adorno and Horkheimer in their famous essay on the culture industry. In a similar way, although from a very different political perspective, Yeats saw Moore's industrially produced verses as the opiate of the Irish nationalist masses, enchanted by a writer whom he insultingly referred to as merely an incarnate social ambition. He regarded Moore's capitulation to the mores of the London drawing room in the same way as Adorno and Horkheimer were to view the control that the culture industry had over the spontaneity of talented performers. In fact, it may not be too fanciful to suggest that Yeats's clear contempt for mass popular culture began as an allergy to his fellow Irishman's effete, saccharine and ubiquitous verses. Yeats may have taken his cue from the radical polemicist William Hazlitt, who was a scathing critic of writers who allowed themselves become what he called intellectual pimps and hirelings of the press. As early as 1825, Hazlitt damned Moore's verses for draining the radical energy out of his Irish subject matter. He wrote, If these national heirs do indeed express the soul of impassioned feeling in his countrymen, the case of Ireland is hopeless. If these prettinesses pass for patriotism, if a country can heave from its heart's core only these vapid, varnished sentiments, lip deep, and let its tears of blood evaporate in an empty conceit, let it be governed as it has been. There are here no tones to waken liberty, to console humanity. Mr. Moore converts the wild harp of Aaron into a musical snuffbox. In James Joyce's A Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man, a sense of Moore's languid capitulation also informs Stephen Dedalus in his reflections on the statue of the National Poet of Ireland, which he views as he traverses College Green. He looked at it without anger, for... Though sloth of the body and of the soul crept over it like unseen vermin, over the shuffling feet and up the folds of the cloak and around the servile head, it seemed humbly conscious of its indignity. It was a fear bullock in the borrowed cloak of a Miletian. These weighty thoughts contrast very well with those of Leopold Bloom, who on passing the same statue in the Lestragonians episode of Ulysses, muses about the appropriateness of placing the author of The Meeting of the Waters over a urinal. As Anne Fogarty argues in her lecture in this series, Joyce, unlike Yeats, depicts popular culture as a site of resistance and the very basis by which his characters may contest the enervating effects of capitalism and of political imperialisms. Interestingly, the waning of Moore's reputation in the latter half of the 19th century was more pronounced among the literati than among the masses. Among ordinary people, Moore's popularity endured the density of reference to the melodies in Joyce's work is an interesting case in point here. For although Joyce could never claim to be a popular writer, particularly in the early part of the 20th century, his work is heavily invested in the quotidian realities of his own moment, which is reflected through a deep engagement with Moore's work. Into the 20th century, the songs were given an extended afterlife by the recordings and wireless broadcasts of popular artists such as John McCormack, Margaret Burke Sheridan, and the British tenor Webster Booth. As late as 1991, Seamus Dean could confidently write that 
Moore is still, in terms of popular appeal, Ireland's national poet. The melodies have also made their mark on contemporary popular culture. The tune of Come On Eileen by Dexy's Midnight Runners, which was the biggest selling UK single of 1982, is introduced by the opening bars of Believe Me If All Those Endearing Young Charms. And versions of the melodies have been given by a range of popular cultural icons from Bugs Bunny, who also famously sang Believe Me If All Those Endearing Young Charms, to Nina Simone, who recorded a strangely powerful version of The Last Rose of Summer. The Minstrel Boy, too, has informed the soundtracks of numerous films, particularly those, particularly those with an obvious Irish-American inflection. That song, of course, has a deep connection with fire and police departments across the United States and was prominently used during the post-9-11 mourning period. These songs were once hugely popular because of their poetic manipulation of a late 18th century sense of a vanishing, yet enduring Irishness. Ironically, in this later cultural moment, they have themselves become vestigial signifiers of Hibernian ethnicity. Any casual search for Thomas Moore in that great repository of contemporary popular culture, YouTube, will confirm as much. If the story of transnational Irish popular culture begins with Thomas Moore in the early 19th century, it wasn't until the 1880s that writers and intellectuals began to theorise the impact of mass cultural production on the Irish psyche during the industrial century. In 1892, Douglas Hyde, sounding the keynote of the Irish revival, wrote that the present art products of one of the quickest, most sensitive and most artistic races on earth are now only distinguished for their hideousness. In the course of that influential essay, The Necessity for De-Anglicising Ireland, he built up a narrative of Irish cultural degeneration brought on by the unthinking absorption of what he perceived to be vulgar British popular culture. We must set our face sternly against penny dreadfuls, he wrote, shilling shockers and still more, the garbage of vulgar English weeklies like Bow Bells and the Police Intelligence. Hyde, however, was not against popular culture per se, but made discriminations along national lines. He was careful to suggest that every house should have a copy of Moore and Davis. In this sense, he diverged from Yeats, who, as we have seen, found most forms of mass-produced culture repugnant, whether homegrown or not. Yet, as Eddie Holt shows in his contribution to this series, there was one form of mass-produced popular culture that Yeats found irresistible, the newspapers. His not inconsiderable body of writing for the press ranges from literary journalism to letters to the editor. As Holt demonstrates, though, Yeats displayed considerable journalistic nous over the span of his career to make ends meet during lean times, to publicise his literary endeavours, to plead Ireland's cause and to further his own political agendas. The fact remains, though, that Yeats is squarely associated with an uncompromisingly hostile view of popular culture. In her book, Our Irish Theatre, Lady Gregory recalls a lecture which Yeats gave in February 1900 attacking the scourge of British popular culture in Ireland. The materialism of England and its vulgarity are surging up about us, Yeats thundered. It is not Shakespeare England sends us, but musical farces, not Keats and Shelley, but titbits. This is an early expression of the filthy modern tide that he portrays in his late poem, The Statues. For the record, Titbits was one of the most successful of a wave of popular magazines which appeared in Britain in the closing quarter of the 19th century. 
It catered to a market which now existed thanks to compulsory education and combined improvement with amusement. Titbits established a model for rewriting material from many sources, using cheap newsprint and selling in volume. With a masthead that read, from all the most interesting books, periodicals and contributors in the world, it clearly functioned as the Reader's Digest of its day. It is not a surprise that it would appeal to that fictional embodiment of Victorian middle-brow trivia, Leopold Bloom. The revivalists' answer to what they saw as the coarsening influences of mass culture was to invest heavily in retrieving what they believed to be the authentic folk culture of the people. As John Fisk has argued, bemoaning the loss of the authentic can be a fruitless exercise in romantic nostalgia. However, it is also important to point out that revivalist appeals to vanishing folk practices did also play a strategic role in subverting the distortions of the colonial mindset. Lady Gregory, Douglas Hyde and John Millington Singh were enthusiastic folklorists who created new literary possibilities from their experiences in the field. Once again, as with Thomas More, that representation of vestigial traces of a true and essential Irishness was central to the revival project. In this case, though, it was an earthy, peasant Irishness which had been actually encountered in contrast to Moore's delicately polished fragments of Gaelic aristocracy. Needless to say, the revival produced a highly mediated and constructed version of national identity rather than the real thing, whatever that might be. This version, however, was recruited as a bulwark against the advance of popular culture from the imperial centre that was being enthusiastically embraced by a rapidly modernising bourgeois Irish nationalism. Inevitably, this process led to an untenable bifurcation at the heart of the revival project, whereby the category of mass popular culture was associated with foreign imposition, while so-called authentic Irish folk culture was sequestered almost exclusively for high literary purposes. This may have produced some fine contributions to European modernist literature, but it didn't always speak to the thousands of Irish people who were regular readers of titbits. Interestingly, John Millington Singh was one of the earliest critics of the Yeatsian esoterics that became synonymous with the revival. In the preface to his poems, written shortly before his death in 1909, Singh wrote, When men lose their poetic feeling for ordinary life and cannot write poetry of ordinary things, their exalted poetry is likely to lose its strength of exaltation, in the way men cease to build beautiful churches when they have lost happiness in building shops. In the end, argued Singh, the best writing should be appealing to strong men and thieves and deacons, not by little cliques only. The Irish revival is often considered to be a movement characterised by a definite hostility to the popular culture of the entertainment industry, especially that imported from Britain. And indeed, there is much truth behind this assessment. Yet it does not tell the complete story. There were other forces within revivalism which supported the development of popular entertainments along Irish lines. The Gaelic League, after all, was intent on seizing the Irish language from the antiquarians and making it popular again by associating it with popular entertainment. Horace Plunkett's cooperative movement was also hugely important in its encouragement of local initiatives such as sports, traditional music and village libraries for the betterment and amusement of ordinary people. Yet if one thing distinguishes revivalist popular culture, it is the emphasis on a participatory, parish-based model of cultural engagement in opposition to the passive, consumerist, individual idea 
of the culture industry. Ironically, during the 1990s, it was the commercialization of this largely participatory traditional culture, be it dance, music or Gaelic games, which fueled a whole new phase in the story of Irish popular culture, increasingly being played out on the global stage. Elaine Sisson's ScholarCast in this series explores some of these issues by contrasting how the figure of Cúhollán was adapted to create an idea of modern male citizenship with more recent uses of that heroic image. The rest of the lectures in this series address key moments in the story of Irish popular culture up to the present time. In her distinguished work on the cultural history of Ireland during the Second World War, Claire Wills describes how a sense of Ireland under siege from foreign popular culture is reactivated and intensified. The complex dynamics of the emergency also boosted the production of popular culture along Irish lines, especially in amateur drama, film and journalism. Moving into the Celtic Tiger period, Paige Reynolds explores the globally popular form of contemporary Irish drama. As she perceptively argues, Irish playwrights now make liberal use of the cinematic and narrative patterns of Hollywood movies, a striking reversal of the trajectory of reference from the drama of the revival. This would suggest that the American film industry provides a productive tool for exploring Irish identity and history in the era of globalisation. But if Irish playwrights have taken up Hollywood, Hollywood can also take up Irish dramatists, as the film adaptation of Brian Friel's Dancing at Lunasa testifies. In his personal reflections on the process of writing the screenplay for that film, Frank McGuinness provides much insight into this act of translation, as well as a fitting tribute to his fellow Donegal playwright Brian Friel. Considering the theme Globalising Irish Music, the composer Bill Whelan provides the deft analysis of an astute observer of Irish culture, as well as the fascinating insights of a key participant in the phenomenal Riverdance story. It has become the critical norm of late to take pot shots at this ageing warhorse, and I've taken one or two myself. Yet considering it in relation to the comparable transnational success of Moore's Melodies is instructive. Like the Melodies in its day, Riverdance has come to be regarded, perhaps unfairly, as the stable signifier of a complex and rapidly evolving Irish cultural dynamic. Interestingly, when the critique did come, Moore was berated for his emphasis on a moribund Irishness, while Riverdance was ticked off for being overly exuberant. In both cases, the highbrow hostility to the popular embrace of a homegrown hit is palpable. The story of its inception, as relayed by Bill Whelan here, is instructive and demonstrates how a participatory and collaborative idea of cultural endeavour became a highly successful commercial product. Perhaps most significant of all is Whelan's proximity to and involvement in highly fertile moments and movements in contemporary Irish popular music, from traditional to rock. Part of the extraordinary appeal of Whelan's Riverdance score is that it collapsed the imposed divide between Irish traditional music and popular commercial music, which had its origins in a revivalist allergy to Moore's melodies. Sean O'Riada may have prepared the ground for Whelan, but even O'Riada was careful to keep his jazz pianist self and Irish composer self in two separate compartments. In his contribution to the series, Whelan states the following. What O'Riada did was take old Irish melodies and reorchestrate them in a way that made sense to the ears of his contemporaries. They recognised that this was their music, but in a way they had not heard it before. 
Clearly the lessons were not lost on Whelan himself. To finish up these reflections on Irish popular culture, I'd like to refer briefly to a clever ad for Carlsberg beer, which ran on Irish television some time ago. Three young Irish lads on tour find themselves in a nightclub in an unspecified exotic location, perhaps Rio de Janeiro. They are challenged by the barman and some of the regulars to do something Irish before they are allowed to enjoy the delights that the club has to offer. They are presented with two choices, sing or dance. After a short deliberation, one of the Irish visitors steps forward to answer the challenge on his own terms, offering neither a song nor a dance, but a third alternative, the performance of A Poem in Our Native Tongue. As it turns out, the poem he recites is not one of the better-known verses from the canon of Gaelic literature, but a spontaneous creation of his own, which appears to be a pastiche of random phrases remembered from his primary school Irish lessons. Luckily for the Irish visitors, the verse is well received and they are embraced by the club bystanders who appear suitably impressed by the recitation Asgaelge. So many questions are prompted by this. Is this the contemporary equivalent of the 19th century drawing room in which Thomas More excelled? Once again, a residual memory of Gaelic Ireland is being drawn on here to charm a cosmopolitan audience. By performing a parody of the authentic, that's what the guys actually do, is the ad actually authentic to many Irish people's experience with the Irish language? Authentic to those of us who never get beyond the couple of focal? Is it exposing a widespread tokenism towards the language, the feigned investment in it? Or does this ad represent an important reconnection of the Irish language with global popular culture? Perhaps what is most significant is the extent to which these issues have been hotly debated on the YouTube discussion board dedicated to this advert, which can be freely accessed on that website. It may be that participatory and consumerist ideas of popular culture are coming together in ways that could not have been imagined a decade or so ago. It is interesting, though, that the question of what's involved in doing something Irish is still being asked. You have been listening to PJ Matthews in a University College Dublin ScholarCast in the series The Art of Popular Culture from the Meeting of the Waters to Riverdance. A transcript of this lecture can be found at www.ucd.ie forward slash ScholarCast. <laughs>